Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. Chess.com recently launched a new way to learn from your games with a feature called Insights. If you visit chess.com slash insights, you can get detailed stats and analysis in any of the time controls you've played and across any time period. What kind of things can you learn? Well, you can learn what time of day do you play your best, morning, afternoon, or night? What part of the game are you strongest or weakest, opening, middle game, or end game? Are you making more or less mistakes than opponents at your level? You can find out all this great info and much more at chess.com slash insights. Welcome to the first full content episode of this show. I'll start by asking you a question. If you spent an additional 1,200 hours learning and playing chess, what do you think your top lessons would be from that experience? Well, that amount of hours is roughly how much time I spent on chess in the past 12 months. And obviously, I learned a ton in that time, as anybody would in 1,200 hours of uh, studying and playing chess. And I'm not going to share with you all the stuff I learned, obviously, like, like you know, in, in, in the Italian or things like that, but rather the top seven lessons that I got just in terms of the learning process. Like, what were the top seven things that made the biggest difference for me in improving? And uh, that's actually a good segue into one other thing I want to mention, which is a little bit of a disclaimer on these seven lessons, because I want to frame this properly. I don't know that all of these seven lessons will help every single chess player that could be listening to this. And that's because just, you know, I'm at the rating that I'm at and some things are relevant in that, in that spectrum of rating. And if you're above it or below it, maybe it isn't. So when I started uh, my, when I restarted my chess journey after many years away, I was about 1000 on chess.com rapid. And over a year, I climbed to nearly 1500 on chess.com rapid. So pretty close to 500 points in that time. And the reason I mentioned that is to tell you that, uh, you know, if you are uh, at about my rating, 1500 chess.com rapid or below it, my lessons can be helpful for you, I think. If you are significantly above where I'm at, like if you're more than 200 points, well past 200 points above me, um, I can't promise these lessons will help you, but you never know. It, it, they, they might, or maybe it's just interesting to you to hear what someone learned in that, in that period of time. Okay, lesson number one, practicing easy tactics were more helpful to me than practicing difficult tactics. So early on, I, I, I gleaned from studying a lot of resources uh, on how to improve that I should spend a lot of time on tactics at my level. And I did. But the problem was I studied tactic courses and books that were too difficult for me. And how I'm describing too difficult is this. It took me two to five minutes to solve a puzzle each time for each single puzzle. And uh, there's value in that for sure. I mean, you know, you're really working on calculation and, and things like that. But, but it didn't really help me quickly recognize simple patterns. And I think that if you're, you know, about 1500 or below that 
that's a really key critical part of your learning process. You just want to be able to recognize easy tactics very quickly. And it didn't help me do that. And uh, I, you know, I think one of the challenges when you are learning chess is finding uh, resources that are appropriate to your level. Right. I, I think everyone struggles with that a little bit. That's always like one of my key questions now when someone recommends something like, is it appropriate for me, though? Is it too easy? Is it too hard? And the tactics courses that I was doing at the time were just too difficult. Um, and that that changed for me uh, when I started the book Chess Tactics for Students. It's by John Bain. And that one is a, like a great place to start basic chess pattern recognition, particularly, I think, if you were at about my level of a thousand on up, I think if you know, you're know you significantly lower than that, it's possible it's a little too challenging, but not, not by a lot. Um, but the goal with the Chess Tactics for Students workbook is to be able to do those tactics quickly, meaning uh, you're not just trying to solve them, but you can just almost recognize them instantly. You, you know, you don't have to do a lot of calculation, just the patterns become obvious to you. That's what you're trying to get to with it. And those tactics are pretty basic. Uh, I don't even say they're, they're like absolute beginner level, but there's something above that. Um, and it just made a huge difference for me in, in, in my tactical ability. I started seeing it in my games. Um, and I could just, I could even solve the more difficult puzzles faster because I could spot easier ones faster. Now, maybe sounds obvious, but I, I think that uh, a lot of students of chess struggle with that early on in the early to mid stages of trying to get better. And um, that just that just made a big difference for me. So I highly recommend making f- most of, uh, if you're, again, if you're at about my level or lower, uh, making most of your tactical training uh, the easy stuff and making the difficult tactics a much, much smaller portion of, of what you focus on. Okay, lesson number two could be a little controversial uh, based on who you are and what your feelings are and openings, but here's my second lesson. By the time I got to about 11 or 1200 chess.com rapid, uh, knowing openings did matter, uh, but what I also realized at the same time is that they should still be a minority of your study time. So I know a lot of coaches and even um, strong amateurs disagree with this. I've heard a lot of people say that Either uh, openings just don't matter at all for an amateur or they don't matter until you're, I don't know, 17, 1800 USCF or something like that. And look, I, I am not a chess master, <laughs> but just based on my own personal experience, I kind of disagree with that. I think they do matter. I think the mistake, though, is to just spend too much time on them. But I don't think it's a mistake once you're over, you know, maybe about 1100 or so to to spend some time on them. I, I know that I lost a lot of games along the way because I didn't know my opening well. And I know I won a lot of games because I did know my opening well. And I have a, a fun little story on that. This past fall, I went to a tournament and it was my final game of the tournament. I wasn't feeling all that great in terms of my energy. I was really fatigued. I was low on sleep. And I really didn't want to play that last game. But I decided to just do it anyway. That's why I was there was to play chess games. So um, I, I, I sat at the board and got ready for the game. And I checkmated my opponent in six moves. And the reason I checkmated, checkmated my opponent in six moves is because I knew that there was a trap in the two knights variation against the Karo Khan. And that trap wasn't just a 
get a piece, but would checkmate your opponent in six moves if they fell into it. Now, mind you, I wasn't. this wasn't a line where I was trying to set them up for it. It's just something they can stumble into and you want to be aware of if you play the two knights variation against the Karo. And I did. And the reason I knew that line was because I spent a good amount of time studying how to play against the Karo Khan. I did uh, Christoph Selecki's um, uh, Keep It Simple course for 1E4 and his Karo line recommendations includes the two knights variation. I studied a fair amount. Help me out. Got an easy win. <laughs> now, I won't say that that, you know, studying openings, you know, gives you a, a checkmate in six every third game or something like that. But it's just an example of how it does help. And that's probably my favorite example of it. Uh, even when it doesn't lead to checkmate, I, I feel like studying openings even as a, as a um, I don't know, advanced beginner or early intermediate, I still think at that stage, it, it can be useful. And uh, I think the the challenge is just to not go too deep in how much time you spend on it. So I try to keep it to about 20, 25% of my study time, openings that is. So, you know, like if you had five hours a week that you were going to study chess, um, you know, one hour of it is openings. And I, I just don't feel like that's a barrier on the contrary, on the barrier to improvement. On the contrary, I think, I think it'll help a lot. My third lesson is pretty quick to just explain. There's not, a, there's not a whole lot to it, but uh, my third lesson that I learned out of this massive year of intense study was that spending roughly 50% of my chess time, if you will, on studying and 50% on games and analysis turned out to be a pretty good ratio on how to divide it up. I think, you know, if you're like a lot of people, you have that question, uh, how much time do I spend on games and analysis? How much time do I spend on study? And, uh, you know, people can easily err on one side or the other. You can study too much. You can, you can play too much. Um, I don't think I personally veered too far on one side or the other, uh, but it just once, I, I mean, I, I, I got this, I saw this advice from Maurice Ashley. And once I got that, I, I just realized that that was, I, I decided to go with it. That recommendation, uh, I didn't get it from him personally. <laughs> he didn't speak to me directly. I just, uh, you know, saw him recommend that, that, um, uh, that just seemed to be a good structure. It felt balanced. It felt like I wasn't getting too tired of studying or I, I wasn't uh, neglecting it either by doing it too little. And uh, it just seemed to be a nice balance. And again, just on the on the, on the the 50% of games and analysis. So uh, that just means like, okay, if you were going to just use a nice round number, if you had 10 hours of chess time in a week, five hours were then for games and analysis. So maybe you I don't know, played three, three and a half hours, and then maybe about 90 minutes would be analysis. So that's kind of how that breaks down. So you include your analysis time in your game time. Um, but that, that really just helps give a lot of guidance and structure to the whole thing, I think. My fourth lesson from my big year of returning to chess was that slow chess games were the best time control for improvement. And um, I say for improvement... That's a key part of that phrase because I'm not talking about like what, what you enjoy playing most. Maybe you enjoy blitz most. Maybe you enjoy rapid most. But just from the perspective of improvement, that slow chess, that is classical game time controls, uh, are, are just going to give you the most bang for your buck in terms of improvement. I, you know, I was introduced to this idea that it was ideal for improvement from Dan Heisman, who is an amazing chess coach. And he's someone I learned from early on through his books. And then he later became my coach as well. And um, his recommendation was obviously to, to spend, you know, more of your game time on slow chess games than, than any other time control, if you're trying to maximize your improvement. 
And uh, that's that's where I just once I was introduced to that concept, it really made a big difference in in how well I could improve. And also just for me personally, how much I enjoyed the game because I'm someone who likes to take time to think. I, I have this um, uh, confidence slash arrogance <laughs> that if you just give me enough time, I can I can figure out a move that will um, that will at least put me in a better position than my opponent. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily going to find the best engine move, but I feel like I can outplay my opponent if I just have enough time to think. Now, I know that's not technically true. Uh, lots of people are better than me, but I feel that. And so when I have more time to think, I feel like I have better chances in the game. So that was just my own personal preference. But really, just objectively, it did doing slow chess games really did make a big difference in my improvement overall. And the reason, uh, I guess, has to do with the fact that you as a as an amateur a beginner or an intermediate you really need to spend a lot of time uh, calculating and and trying to figure out how to find best moves you know there's just that that process of you know checking for safety checking for tactics uh, weighing out you know whether candidate move one is better than candidate move two and that that's just a new thing if yeah, I think if you're in, you know, a new ish thing for you, if you're intermediate or lower and um, the more time you spend on that, the the better of a chess player you can become. And so if you do most of your game time and faster time controls than classical, it just doesn't yield as much improvement. Now, that's my own <laughs> best ability to explain it. But if you checked out the video uh, intermediate time controls hinder improvement. If you look that up on YouTube, intermediate time controls hinder improvement. And I'll have links to that um, for uh, you know underneath this episode. Um, it's by Dan Heisman, and he goes into a much better explanation <laughs> than I can of of why the, why classical games is ideal for improvement, uh, particularly for for beginners and intermediates. So, um, yeah, I would check that out. Uh, maybe maybe it'll make you a believer. I know that scheduling can be difficult for adults and that that is probably the biggest challenge with a classical game is finding the time to do it but uh, i'm a believer also that better is better and like whatever x percent you can increase your game time by that's in the classical category just the more improvement you'll see even if it's not an optimal percentage you know what whatever more you can add of it uh, you'll you'll see benefits that's my recommendation that was a lesson that i learned and i think it's critical I also think it's something that a lot of adult improvers just don't do enough of based on what I see anyway. And I understand, you know, like I said, scheduling is difficult. It can be fun to play faster games, but you know, if, if, if you're gunning for improvement, you know, I don't think you can ignore that lesson. So that's my advice on that. Lesson number five, over the board tournaments, accelerate your progress. In 2021, I did six over-the-board tournaments, which was a lot considering in 2021, you really couldn't do almost any, I don't think, for like the first five months just because of COVID. And at least in my area in Chicago, tournaments didn't really start popping up in full until um, early summer. So I did I, I did six and I tried to keep a pace of a tournament every six weeks. That was what I was going for. So kind of like roughly maybe 10 tournaments in a year was the pace that I was going for. And it was just immensely beneficial <laughs> for my improvement. First of all, my very first OTP tournament that I did after many years away from the game, I mean, I got I got slaughtered. I lost almost all my games in the first tournament that I went to. Um, 
in part, in large part, I should say, that was because I entered uh, a section, a rating section that I wasn't ready for because I did not appreciate the the vast difference between an online rating and uh, USCF ratings. Um, but it was still very instructive because it kind of, even though I kind of misjudged that, it still made me realize that I had so much further to go that, that just even, you know, like average tournament players were way better than me. And uh, it really humbled me and made me realize I needed to, uh, I won't say do more volume of chess because I was already doing a lot, but I really needed to hone how I studied and I, and that I also needed a coach at that point to, to really get significantly better. And um, there's just a few other reasons that I want to mention about why I think OTB tournaments are really great if you want to accelerate your progress. Uh, just piggybacking on the last point, it gives you that lengthier calculation time that you just usually don't get when you play online, even compared to classical games online, because most, um, I, I guess I don't know if this is 100% true everywhere, but at least in my area, most of the tournaments that I went to, the classical time control was even longer by a lot than than the 45-45 games that are you know, kind of the standard online. So you're spending even more time calculating, basically is the point, at OTB tournaments. And that's a good thing. That just gives you more practice. Second, um, you can get post-game analysis with your opponents, which is rare online. And that post-game analysis is just really, really great, especially if you're playing somebody who's uh, a, f- a fair bit better than you. Then you'll get insights um, that you didn't have. You'll start to see what better players can do that you didn't. You just weren't aware of. You didn't realize, okay, this is what's missing from me being 200 points better. It'll become clearer to you if you can get the chance to do that. Um, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir here. I don't know how many of you already just regularly go to tournaments or feel that's important to you. But uh, if you haven't, man, it really just levels you up in a big way. One more point I'd like to make about doing over-the-board tournaments is to do them regularly because I feel that that gives you uh, more motivation and focus in your in your study and improvement. In fact, I, I don't think I would have been nearly as consistent throughout the year with my study if I didn't have if I didn't always have that next tournament on the horizon coming, just knowing that the next one was six weeks away, uh, just and and I lost you know maybe two or three games of the last tournament, I was like, oh man, I need to fix the errors quickly that I made in the last tournament because the next one's just six weeks away. Now I, I know not everyone can do a tournament every six weeks or maybe wants to, but the more frequently you can do them, the better. I'll just say that because. It, it, especially if it doesn't feel like it's going to be a year away until your next one or, or or something, you know, like many, 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 many months away. If it's somewhat close in time, I just feel like it keeps pulling you forward because you know it's on the horizon. So to the best of your ability, if you can regularly schedule some OTB tournaments, man, it really just pulls you forward. All right, we're nearing the end here. So this is lesson six of seven. So just two more. And uh, hopefully you're enjoying this so far. Okay, sixth lesson. Your blitz rating doesn't matter. That was mind-blowing to me. And I heard that from Andres Toth um, in, in a podcast. And if I remember correctly, he said it in the Perpetual Chess podcast. Because I know he's been on several podcasts. I'm trying to remember where I heard the quote. But I think it was the Perpetual Chess podcast. He said something to that effect. I don't know if it's word for word. But he said something to the effect that just your blitz rating isn't all that important. And 
prior to that, I felt like I thought it was very important. <laughs> and I'm sure many of you listening do too. Um, like if my blitz rating went down, I would get upset. I thought I was a worse chess player for it if my blitz rating declined or if it wasn't growing quickly enough. And Andres just on the podcast reminded that the blitz is really just a tool to improve. It's not like the primary metric. Like you basically you can use it for opening practice. You can use it to uh, just test your ability to spot simple tactics quickly. Um, you know, and, and, and those I think are the primary uh, benefits from an improvement standpoint for, for blitz games. The point being that, you know, you're, you're the blitz is in an improvement context, blitz is a tool. It's not like the primary metric. And once I stopped making it a primary metric for how how my improvement was going, uh, I, stopped, I just I think I enjoy chess a whole lot more. And um, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. If you feel like you're able to just not care about your blitz rating, you know, whether it goes up or down, um, I get, you know, every person's different, I suppose. But I, I think once you at least just take it out of the realm of, okay, it, it, it needs to improve along with all my other metrics. If it doesn't need to improve, I think you can just <laughs> sleep easier and um, focus more on, on more important metrics for, for improvement. And uh, um, that's, that's just my, that's just a major insight for me. I don't know if that does anything for you hearing that. I hope so. Because it really, it really took a lot of stress out of it for me, the whole trying to get better thing. You know, like it's hard enough just to improve your classical rating without also having to worry about your blitz rating. And um, uh, yeah, it was, it was just like a, a, a mental lifesaver for me. Okay, we've arrived at the seventh and final lesson of this episode and that I am sharing with you from the, my past one year of intense chess. And that is the best game analysis is with a coach. There's a lot of content out there on how you should go about analyzing your games. And I'm sure the vast, vast majority of it is all solid recommendations. But my personal experience from this past year is that no analysis, no analysis beats working with a coach. It beats doing it alone. Uh, it beats doing it with an opponent, provided that opponent isn't like a master or a grandmaster. And it beats engine analysis. Uh, I think the greatest insights that you can find um, come from a good coach. It's just information you'll never get anywhere else. An engine can't do it. Your friend can't do it. And even an opponent at a tournament who's, you know, one, 200 points higher than you can't quite give you the insights of a coach. And I'll take it even one step further than that. Not only does a good coach help you uh, better than any other form of game analysis, I actually think that one of the most potent and powerful ways to improve your game, period, is just game analysis with a coach. Uh, it's probably right up there with like intense tactic practice or something like that. I've worked with two coaches over the past year, and they've both been amazing and inc incredibly helpful for my game. Uh, one was Dan Heisman, like I mentioned earlier, and the other, more recently, I've added as well, uh, Yuri Krikun. And I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. But Dan and Yuri have both just been invaluable to me. I could do an extra, I don't name it, 200, 300, 400 hours of study and I would still not get in that time the lessons that they have shared with me. 
And um, so I guess this this final lesson is turning out to be more of a of an advocacy for just having a coach in general when when I wanted it to be more just focused on what what I thought was the best form of game analysis. But I also think that that's like one of the premier ways that a coach can serve you is through game analysis. And um, just to give one or two examples, I um, was going over a game with Yuri and I struggled uh, with the Alpin opening, I didn't quite play it right, and I didn't know what advantages I had and disadvantages I had once the position kind of settled uh, out of the opening. And he asked me if I understood or had learned hanging pawn structures, and I was like, I have never even heard of that. <laughs> so God knows how many more games playing the Alpin I could have done on my own, or just going through the lines over and over and over again, and never realizing that to fully um, maximize that type of opening at, at some point I would need to learn hanging pawn structures because they're so common in that opening. And it's, it's just that just one small example like that of how much coaching can help. And I, I can give many, many others, but I, I you know, this, this episode is probably long enough already. Uh, the point being, they're just going to identify things that you just wouldn't on your own and not just, you wouldn't identify them now, but with even an additional one or two years of study, you might never identify them. And so I I understand that the biggest barrier for coaching for people is financial. You know, I'm sure if everyone could get a great free coach, they would just take it. Uh, so I understand that money is is relevant in, in making this recommendation. Uh, but at the same time, I also know that there's a lot of coaches out there willing to just give you a one-off lesson, you know, where you don't have to commit to like a pack of 20 lessons or something like that. And so I would just say whatever your budget can afford, if you're really eager to improve, even if you just got like one lesson in a three-month period for like 40 or 50 bucks from someone who was relatively inexpensive, I mean, just make a world of difference for you. So that's my opinion on that. Those are my seven lessons. I have like 30 more that I would want to share, but this podcast is looking to be already at about the 30-minute mark, and I don't want to test your patience. <laughs> so maybe I'll make a part two one day. Certainly, I'll make another one like in a year about what I learned you know, in my second um, uh, year of returning to chess, and um, I'm sure those lessons will be different and maybe more relevant for a higher rating level. And closing out this episode, I just have one request. If there was one thing that you found valuable. Let me know what that was by going on Twitter. I am at Lona underscore chess. That is my Twitter handle, Lona underscore chess. Pretty easy to find. Just uh, tag me. Let me know which one of these lessons was valuable to you and why or uh, something to that effect. And uh, and I'll, I'll respond to you and uh, and share my own thoughts with, with whatever you say. So I will see you in the next episode. Thanks. <music> Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.